Good morning, PBC Church family. It's a pleasure to be here again to fill the pulpit and to preach God's word to you. It's, it's a real delight and a joy to, to share what I've gleaned from God's word with you. And so um, before we get into the word, let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this church. And thank you for um, their desire to be here and to hear the word preached, to sing songs of worship to you. Lord, be glorified in the teaching of your word this morning. Help us to understand what's in the text and to apply it to our lives. Lord, give me the words to say and, and uh, help this Sunday to uh, be worshipful and glorifying to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, as Pastor Adam just mentioned, and as you see in your notes, we're going to be in the book of Micah this morning, and so turn there with me in your Bibles. We're going to be in Micah chapter 5. And uh, it's in the Minor Prophets, and it's in the latter half of your Old Testament, so just keep turning until you go past uh, Isaiah, and then you'll get close there. And as you turn there, I want to give you a quick background about the book of Micah, because not all of us are reading in the Minor Prophets. Uh, Maybe some of you are, and that's great, but... Uh, The book of Micah is all about who is going to stand with Yahweh, who is going to stand with the covenant God of Israel because the leadership of Israel is failing. They're in oppression from foreign nations. They're in oppression from their own leaders. And so chapter one is all about how foreign armies are gonna come and they're gonna conquer them and they're gonna be oppressed by these foreign peoples. That's a hopeless situation. But it's even worse because not only are the oppressors from outside of the nation of Israel, but they're from inside. Chapter 2 is all about the oppressors of Israel, those who are in the nation who are oppressing their own people. Chapter 3 is all about the rulers and prophets of Israel who are supposed to be shepherding their people, but instead, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3, we see that instead of shepherding, they're tearing the skin off of their own people and eating their flesh. They're failing to shepherd their people. They're oppressing them in the worst ways possible. And so the people of Israel are in a dire situation. And chapter four introduces the millennial kingdom, the glories of the future reality of their kingdom. And the people of Israel are asking, how? God, how can there be hope that this kingdom will come to pass when there's so much oppression, so much fear, so much distress? And that is the answer in our text this morning in chapter 5, 1 through 5. That is the hope, the hope that Israel has in the midst of this great distress. And so let's read the text, and then uh, we'll get into it. Again, we're in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5a, and let's read together. Now, muster your troops... O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us, and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel." whose going forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, 
He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh and in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. I chose this text for this morning because it's obviously right before Christmas time. We've seen it in the songs we're singing this morning. Many of us are going to be going to Christmas services like the Christmas Eve service here at PBC or maybe if you're a college student, the church that you attend back home. And we're going to hear children as in, in children's plays and scripture readers read passages about the birth of Jesus. And there will be many of them. One such passage you'll most definitely hear is Matthew 2, 3 through 6, which says this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that is a quote, a reference to the passage we're going to be seeing this morning. And we can often forget or maybe not understand the context of some of these Old Testament passages that we read every single Christmas. And because of that, we miss the hope that they have for us today. Today's passage has hope for everyone. Hope for someone like Stacy, a girl in high school who has trouble making friends and she's struggling with her grades, feels like no matter how hard she tries, she can never be good enough for others, for her parents, for those around her. And just like the Israelites, she asks, where can hope be found? Today's passage has hope for someone like David, a middle-aged man who, who works long hours to provide for his family. But his finances are slipping, and the more time he spends on his job, it seems the harder his marriage gets. They fight often. And he feels like his kids are growing up way too fast. And he asks, where can hope be found? Today's passage has hope for someone like Margaret, an elderly woman who feels lonely because the people she knew are getting sick and passing away. Her family's really busy, and she is discouraged by her waning energy. And just like the Israelites, she asks, where can hope be found? And today's passage has some hope for someone like Johnson, a young man enslaved to his sin who is afraid during this Christmas break that he will fall back into that old sin because he'll have so much extra time on his hands. And he'll be with his family and he always seems to butt heads with them and get angry. He can't seem to get free. And he asks, where can hope be found? Whatever your situation this morning, you need to ask where 
can hope be found? Because this world is hard. You might be struggling with illnesses. Maybe your finances aren't the way you'd hope they'd be. Maybe you have had a death in your family or a death of a close friend or loved one. Life is full of sin and the curse. We need to know where our hope is found. And so that's why the title of today's message is The Hope of Christmas. The Hope of Christmas. Because in Micah 5, 1 through 5, we're going to see three events in the ministry of the Messiah that brought Israel hope so that we too can have hope this Christmas. Again, three events in the ministry of the Messiah that give us hope this Christmas. Let's look at the text for point one. The first event is the birth of the Messiah. Look with me at the text. Micah 5, chapter 1 says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. This word muster is probably a word you understand, but you don't use very often, and it's the idea of gathering together. But there's a specific nuance here that's very important. The nuance is that they're not just gathering but they're gathering for themselves. There's an emphasis on their personal action, the work that they're doing. They're busying themselves to make sure they have enough troops for the siege. But Micah kind of gives us a little cue about how their efforts are futile. Their hope in themselves is futile because he calls them, the end of that phrase, daughter of troops. Now, there's all kinds of ways to refer to the people of Israel and their army. You refer to them as the daughter of Zion, the armies of Jerusalem, the armies of Zion, people of God, all kinds of different phrases. But why does Micah choose daughter of troops? Well, the word choice, troops there, is emphasizing that it's just a small band. Didn't really get an army together. Their hope it's not really going to work out for them. We'll see that in the next part of the phrase where it says a siege is laid against us. This is their current state of affairs. They've gathered together a small band, but their efforts are still overwhelmed. They're under siege. A siege, if you don't um, maybe play video games or understand uh, medieval history, a siege is basically... Like if you're surrounded in a back alley by thugs, but instead it's a city. So just imagine that. You're surrounded. You don't really have much hope unless maybe you're, you're carrying or you know kung fu or something, but you're, you, you get the point. You're surrounded. And so there's not much hope despite their efforts. They put hope in themselves. It didn't work out. Because at the end of verse one, it says this, with a rod, they being the nations, strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That word rod there, we understand it's a stick you hit someone with. But that word carries also this idea of scepter. It's, It's like the Queen of England, when she has a crown on her head, that's her symbol of authority. That's what this rod is representing. And so... The leader of these enemy nations, despite the efforts of Israel, has humiliated the king of Israel. He's hit him in the face with his authority. 
That word cheek there is just referring to it being a humiliating blow, humiliating blow to the people. Their efforts were futile. Their hope was in the wrong place. They have no hope now. Their ruler has been struck with the authority of their enemies. This humiliating blow, kind of think of it like a a knockout punch in boxing in the first five seconds of the first round. You get up and you hear the bell ring and they, they, they get their fists up and bam, he's done. Right, that's, it's not a very fun fight to watch. It's not a very even match. There wasn't much hope of success. And so this is the context of the birth of the Messiah that we celebrate every single Christmas in this passage. They're in hopeless distress. Despite their efforts, their ruler has been left humiliated. They're more hopeless before their enemies than they have been before. And so verse two is gonna describe the Messiah's birth in the midst of this distress and contrast it with the current rulers we read about in our introduction. And so let's look at verse two about the birth of the Messiah. Verse two says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, and I just want to pause there for a moment. You might not recognize the name Ephrathah. You recognize Bethlehem. Ephrathah is just a district in Judah. So it's just like saying uh, Santa Clarita is in L.A. County. It's, it's just describing the, the district. So don't get tripped up there. So we're talking about Bethlehem, the city that we know from Christmas. And Micah goes on to describe Bethlehem. He says this in the middle of verse 2. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah? The focus of that phrase is the word little. It's emphasizing the smallness of the city, both in size and in stature. We know a great illustration of this with David when he's selected from his brothers in Bethlehem in 1 Samuel 16. He's not the tallest. He's not the strongest, but God sees his heart. God does a work with David despite his small stature, and that's the same thing that's going to be true of Bethlehem in this passage. Because moving down on in verse two, from you, from Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. That word coming forth, we understand well, is just being born. It's as simple as that. It's like a mom giving birth to a baby. And we understand this in Christmas, right? Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. This prophecy comes true. And so we're going to see in a moment that the hope that Israel has of this Messiah coming is our hope today because he did come. He was born in Bethlehem. But before we we move on to that, we have to understand who really is coming forth. And I said it's a ruler, but what does it mean to be a ruler? We mentioned earlier that the rulers of Israel were doing all sorts of things. And this is a different word. This, This word for ruler means to have dominion over. And so it's like a king who has absolute control over his kingdom. That is the kind of person who's coming forth from such a small and insignificant place. 
And so we have to ask, how? How is this the case? Why, why this king? Well, that's seen in the end of that phrase, from you shall come forth for me. The me is God. And so God is raising up this Messiah despite how small and insignificant Bethlehem is. It's not about their efforts. It's not about how great the city is. That's not where their hope is. Their hope is in the one who comes forth for God, for Yahweh to have dominion. He is coming forth to be a ruler in Israel. It is God who does the work. And so it is in God that Israel is to place their hope. It's not about Bethlehem. Bethlehem's the least of the clans of Judah. There's no hope to be found there. The hope is found in the one who brings forth this great ruler. And so what will this great ruler be like? The ruler who will be born, the ruler who is their hope. Well, that's at the end of verse two. Where Micah says this, describing the ruler, whose going forth is from of old, from ancient days. This word going forth is kind of like saying the year of your birth is where you come forth from. But in this case, the year of birth is eternity past. You have a birth date, whether it's 1989 or 2001 or whatever your birth date is, that's where you go forth from. That's what this word means. But this ruler, he doesn't go forth from a year. He might have been born in Bethlehem, but his ultimate going forth is not from 3, 4 BC. It's from of old. It's from eternity past And so who can come from eternity past and ancient days but God himself? And so we're seeing that God is bringing forth this ruler from Bethlehem and he's not bringing forth some human person that, you know, they mustered up their own strength to kind of help God out. You know, he kind of did a little bit and God did a little bit. No, this hope is that God's gonna raise forth this ruler and that this ruler is going to be God himself incarnate, in flesh. And he's gonna come to be the hope of Israel. And so we've seen from this first event in the ministry of the Messiah that Israel's hope cannot lie in their own efforts. And it does not lie with Bethlehem. It is too little. It does not lie with their rulers. They will be humiliated and struck on the cheek by the enemy nations. God rather, is the one who can bring greatness out of smallness, whose promises are true, and who will bring forth a ruler with his own hand, a ruler that is himself. We also see in this first event what true hope is. The hope of Christmas, a true hope, is found in trusting and resting in the work of God and the fulfillment of his promises, not in all the accolades you have or in the people you surround yourself with. True hope is trusting and resting in the work of God and the fulfillment of his promises. 
And so in this first event, the birth of the Messiah, we too can have hope in this birth. We can have hope in God's faithfulness and his ability to showcase his greatness and his glory in the most bleak of circumstances, in the most intense of distresses, and from the most unlikely of sources. God will be great. He will be glorious, and that glory is our good. It is our good. And as Romans 8.28 says, he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can have hope in this birth of this Messiah because God is doing a work that is beyond us. God is the one who's at work, and so God is the place we put true hope. And so we've seen in the first ministry of the Messiah, his birth, first event in his ministry, how that brings hope. Now let's consider our second point, the redeeming work of the Messiah. Look back with me at the text at verse three. Verse three begins with the word, therefore. For the English majors in the room, we understand that's a transition word. We're trying to understand what's going to result from what we just heard about how this ruler is gonna come forth from Bethlehem. Represents a shift in telling us more details. And so after therefore, verse three says this, he shall give them up until the time. And we're all like, well, hold up, wait. I thought we just said this, this ruler was coming to rule, he's coming to free us from oppression, uh, he's coming to save Israel from their enemies, Therefore, he shall give them up. That word giving up is just referring to how he's giving them up to their enemies. It's like a military that's able to protect a city from enemy attackers and then they just allow the enemies to pass through by their own decided inaction. And from God's perspective, it's justified because Israel is in gross sin. They're failing their God. And so this giving up is justified. But how then is this redemption? Well, hold on, there's, there's a time limit. There's a time limit to this giving up in the second part of the phrase. Look back with me at the text. Therefore, he shall give them up until a time. Well, what's the time? Keep reading with me. Then, oh, sorry, when she who is in labor has given birth. This phrase is the most difficult to understand in this passage because who's the she? We might say Mary because we know already, right? We're, we're in the future of when this passage is written, so we know, hey, Mary's gonna give birth to Jesus. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, right? And you'll call his name Emmanuel. But we need to remember that we're in the context of the book of Micah. And so look back with me at Micah chapter four, verse nine. We're gonna see who this she is. Micah 4, 9, talking to Israel, says this. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seizes you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. 
And so who is the she here? The she is the daughter of Zion, the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel are going to give birth because of their labor pains, because of their distress, to the Messiah. And that is when their time of giving up will be done away with. And so we must ask the question, has the time of Israel being given up ended? Well, look back at Micah 4 again, Micah 4, 9, it's where it says, is there no king in you? And we'll know our answer. Is the Messiah ruler reigning in Israel right now? We just have to take a look at current events to know the answer to that question is no. He is not reigning on his earthly kingdom. He is not ruling from Jerusalem. And so Israel is still being given up to their enemies. And while that is so sad and distressing and we feel for the people of God, the Jewish people, we pray for them, we share the gospel with them, it is also an immense blessing to us as Gentiles. Because praise be to God that there is a gap between the birth of this ruler and his reign where he crushes the nations, he crushes his enemies, because that is us. We're all worthy of his judgment. We're all worthy of that judgment because of our sin. And so because there's a gap between the birth and death of Jesus and the redeeming of Israel, we're gonna see in a moment, we have hope as Gentiles. Do you understand the, the amazing blessing of the fact that the giving up until the time has a gap? We are so fortunate, so fortunate to have the gospel offered to us. We are so unworthy. I am so unworthy. We as Gentiles have been given the opportunity to be brought into the flock of God, into the new covenant community of his people by the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus. How do I know this? Well, Paul helps us out with this in the book of Romans. Turn with me there if you would like. In Romans 11, Pastor Adam's gonna be teaching out of Romans very soon. Romans 11, 11 through 12 says this, so I, being Paul, ask, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then in verse 22 of Romans 11, we see this. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And so then, we must ask, because there's a time gap back in the book of Micah, when then does this redemption take place that is described in this passage? Well, let's look at the end of verse three. When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall turn, shall repent. 
to the people of Israel, to God's remnant. That word brothers there is referring to the people of Israel who are going to be brought back into the fold because of their national repentance. That word brothers is kind of like the people in a group project that benefit from all your work, except your work is the salvation of the Messiah. They just kind of, you know, they don't do anything, but they get all the, the benefits because they're just, they're, relate, they're related to you. They're, they're your partner. So stand in front of the PowerPoint and their name's up there, right? We've all had that happen to us, let's be honest. And so the second coming redeeming of Christ is just as was described in books like Zechariah. Zechariah 12, 10 says this. Let me turn there. Zechariah 12, 10 says, And I, being God, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, whom they ha- on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then in Jeremiah 31, it says a very similar thing about the new covenant. It says this, in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, it says, Behold, The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so we see that this redemption has a time gap and it happens when the king is back in Israel, when he reigns and his people repent and turn to him. And so we've seen now in our second event of the Messiah's ministry, in his redeeming work, that he gives Israel hope that their sins can be cleansed and they could return to their God. And because there is a time gap, this is our great hope, a hope that we have because of God's grace. But the sad reality is that if you have not believed the gospel, you do not have this hope of Christmas. Do not have hope in this birth of the Messiah we celebrate every year. You must believe the gospel that God is holy and you're a sinner and that makes you not right with that separate, all-loving, all-powerful God. And that only through repentance and faith in Christ and a heart that submits to him as your great Messiah ruler can you be right with God. Without that redemption, you have no hope. This is not your hope this Christmas. 
Your hope is just in this life itself, which, if we're all honest, is full of sin and heartache and pain. Yeah, there's some joys mixed in with God's grace, but ultimately it's cursed because of our failure in sin. And so I beg you, this Christmas, ask someone about this hope if you're not right with God. Believe the gospel so that you too can have the hope in this coming Messiah ruler who redeems sinners by his blood. And you too can then have hope in the last event of the Messiah's ministry. That is, the reign of the Messiah. And so we've seen hope is found in the Messiah's birth. We've seen that hope is found in the redeeming work of the Messiah. Again, our last point is the reign of the Messiah. Back in the book of Micah, let's look at verse four. Verse four says this. And he shall stand. Once the time of his birth and the time of his redeeming has come, the ruler will stand. That word stand just kind of means coming onto the picture. It's like when Pastor Adam or anybody comes up here to speak. They've arrived at this place. Your eyes are set on them. That is what this ruler is doing. He showed up. And so the hope is not just that he'll show up, obviously, but then he's going to reign and that reign's going to look like something, right? That reign is not going to be like the corrupt leaders of Judah. It's not going to be like our political leaders today. His reign is not going to oppress his sheep. It's going to shepherd them. His reign will be characterized by, look back at verse 4, he will shepherd his flock. That word is very important in the book of Micah. Because if you turn back to Micah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, in his condemnation of the false shepherds, God himself says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together, ready, like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them and they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, Yahweh as their head. And so we see again that this ruler isn't just a normal guy. He's a shepherd. And the one who shepherds in the book of Micah is God himself. And so this reign, again, is characterized by shepherding, the shepherding of God himself, of his people. We see that again in the, the nature of this shepherding. Look back at the text. And he, stand, he shall stand and shepherd his flock. How? In the strength of Yahweh. So that is strength that is unmatched, unparalleled, like the strongest tornado and the earthquakes that some of us know so well here in California. You can't stop an earthquake. No one stands and says, all right, not, not here in Santa Clarita, maybe somewhere else, but not here, right? No one says the earthquake does what it does. You can't stop it. That is the strength that this ruler brings. But it isn't just shepherd in strength of 
the Lord, of God himself, but also in majesty. That is exaltation. It's like uh, the beauty you see in a sunrise. It's just beyond you how marvelous God has made this world. Marvelous, he has made everything, including us. You're just awestruck by his greatness. That is how this ruler is going to reign in his kingdom. That is how Jesus is going to reign in his kingdom. And so what does this kind of shepherding do for Israel? Let's keep moving in the text. And they, being Israel, at the end of verse four, shall dwell secure. That might seem like a little phrase to us, right? Like if you're in your house and you lock all the doors, you're dwelling secure. You feel safe. It's your little space. Or if you think on an extreme example, like uh, the president in the White House, right? Surrounded by Secret Service, bulletproof walls, no one's getting to him, right? So we got our example of of our own homes and then the White House, But why does this matter? Why that small phrase matters so much? Because it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. If you remember, Abraham was promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. This is the fulfillment of the land promised to Abraham. In Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, and this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. God promises David that one day he will have a son who will reign and his people will dwell secure. And so this small phrase holds so much importance because it builds on all of these promises God has made to his people. When this Messiah comes to reign, his people will see the fulfillment of God's promises to them. They will dwell secure in the land of Canaan. And the new covenant is going to be fulfilled. And all the old covenants that led up to it, God's gonna make every one of them come to pass for his people. That's what this shepherding will produce. But you might still ask, okay, we've dwelt secure before, Israel might say, maybe in the reign of Solomon. How can we be sure that this security will last? Well, God makes sure he answers that in verse four near the end, and they shall dwell secure for now in this reign, he, the Messiah, will be great to the ends of the earth. There's no place he won't touch, no enemy that can find them. He will be great in every part of this world, in every particle of this universe, he will reign. We see that Prophesied in other places, like in Zechariah 9, where he will rule from the sea to the rivers. And in Daniel chapter 2, 44 to 45, where he will be like a mountain who will fill the whole earth and crush the enemy nations who are oppressing Israel. And none will stand in his path. None can say to a mountain, you know, I'm trying to build something here, so how about you like scoot over a little bit and I'll put my house right here. No, you don't do that to a mountain. A mountain says, I'm here. We invent dynamite, try to blow it up, but it's still, it's, it's pretty hard to do that, right? 
And so his kingdom reaches the ends of the earth. That's why his people know and can hope that he will allow them to dwell secure, that his promises will come to pass. And just in case they weren't sure, he adds in verse five, Micah says, he shall be their peace. They will have peace. They will have rest because their king will reign to the ends of the earth. And the rest of verse five and six has a lot more to unpack, but basically it talks about the Assyrians. They're gonna come. Let's read it. And the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our palaces. Then we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword. And he the Messiah, shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Verse five and six are kind of the outworkings of showcasing that peace. No enemies will be there to get them. When their enemies come, they will be crushed by this king. And so the hope of Christmas in the reigning of this Messiah for Israel is it gives hope because it showcases God's faithfulness and his promises to them. That whatever God promises comes to pass. Not one of them is left out. It's not like, oh, 90% of the promises come true, but 10% of them don't. Sometimes God says something and it doesn't happen. No, every promise happens. That is the hope of the Messiah's reign. And so... For us this Christmas, we might see the world all around us. Some of us might see sin in our own lives, sin in the lives of others, political failures, whatever the case may be. Some of us might be afraid of what 2024 or the future might bring. We see this world and the struggles we have. But this event in the life of the Messiah, we can have hope in because we know that no matter what happens, God is faithful. He is faithful to his promises and he will return for us, his bride, his church, and we will reign with Christ and enjoy him forever. That is a hope that will surpass whatever it is you're struggling with because we know that he will reign. And so we've seen, we've seen in Micah 5, 1 through 5a, that hope truly is found in the birth, redeeming work, and reigning of the Messiah. There was hope for Israel in their intense distress during the reign of Zedekiah, and there is hope for us today in 2023 and 2024 and until God takes us home. That is the hope of Christmas but I want to make sure we get into our hearts and minds that hope just isn't an idea. It isn't just something that stays and, oh, I feel good about what's coming. I feel good about what the Messiah did. It's a feel-good feeling. No, hope, true hope takes action. It changes lives. Let me show you with our examples we started with. There is hope for the Messiah from the Messiah for Stacy. Hope that despite her struggles, making friends and with school, that there is a God who sent his son to be born, 
so that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on him instead. And so she lets go of her anxiety about school, does not put her hope in human friends, but instead remembers and meditates on who she is in Christ and how she has a perfect relationship with the one who died for her of his own steadfast love for her despite her struggles to make friends. There is hope in this passage for David. Hope that despite his long hours of work and despair over his marriage, that there is a God who can redeem and that redemption was so much more than just being debt-free. It's about being right with God and living for him in what he calls to be important. That is his hope in this passage for Christmas. And so he decides that hope in what God is doing sometimes means going through hard times or giving up standard of living so he can be committed to faithfully shepherding his wife and family because that's what God finds important. There can be hope for Margaret, hope that despite her loneliness and waning years of life, that as she gets older, she has opportunity to tell others about God how he's been faithful to her in her long life and is coming back to reign no matter what her age is. And so she decides that she might only have a few years, but she's going to use her desire to be with people to disciple the ladies in her church, to have that hope change her so that she can declare that the Messiah is coming back to reign. He has come to redeem sinners. There's hope for Johnson that no matter his sin and circumstances, there is a God who breaks down sin and redeems every stain, the man Christ Jesus, born on Christmas Day. There is no stain he can't clean, no struggle of sin he cannot help you have the strength to overcome. And so that hope causes him to decide that this season of break is a great opportunity to make strides in becoming more like Christ causing a change in in, in how he lives his life and his Bible reading and his prayer and his meditation on God's word with his spare time. That is what that hope drives him to do. And you too can have the hope of Christmas change your life. A hope that does not stay an idea in your head about what the Messiah has done in his birth and his redeeming work and in his future reign a hope that penetrates deep into your heart and causes a change in how you live your life, how you relate to others, how you relate to God, and how you cast off idols and false hopes, put your hope in where it truly should lie, in God and the work of his son. And so whatever your circumstances in life, you can have hope this Christmas. Hope that the Messiah was born for a great God and he was a great God in flesh, born to the Virgin Mary. That the Messiah redeems not just Israel, but by God's grace, those who put their faith in Christ. And that he can redeem from the worst kinds of sin, like the sin we saw in chapter three where the leaders were committing horrible crimes to their people. He can redeem. And finally, hope that the Messiah is coming back to reign. 
He's gonna reign over this whole earth in peace and justice and joy. And so whatever your circumstances this Christmas, whatever your circumstances this next year, a true hope, you must find your security, rest, joy, and peace in the Messiah. This hope should change you, give you security, give you rest, give you peace, and make you more like the Messiah of Christmas. Let's pray. Dear Lord, what a wonderful passage we saw here this morning, a promise of the hope of Christmas in your son, born in the lowly birth, but born to do great things, born to give us hope in our sin and hope in the future, hope that you will redeem our sin and you will change us. Lord, hope that will make us have changed relationships and changed commitments to you. And so, Lord, pray for everybody in this room. I pray for myself that in this season we would know the hope of Christmas in the Messiah. We would allow it to cause a change in us that would resonate in glorifying you in all that we do and say and in the lives that we live. And it is for your glory and in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.